0: Amen. Yeah, amen. So, um, Pastor Barden had had began a new series last week, and we're looking at David, titled "Chasing the Heart of God." Um, and it's so good to be with you um, here again this morning. I've loved the opportunity to be um, in here sharing with you all a couple times over the last few weeks. Uh, Pastor Barden and his family are away on vacation this weekend, so we're we're glad that they're just taking some time, much needed, much deserved time to rest and be together as a family. That's so important. Uh my family, we were just in Florida um over the last week and a half or so and just had such a good time just resting and getting some sunburn and um we didn't get lost at all. We drove down there. We drove to Florida, so um, 22 hours in the car with three kids. I mean, <laughs> we still have all of our hair and that's so, all. So we made it. We came back with one less, so maybe that's why, I don't know. Uh, we didn't leave him. He he went with grandpa and grandma. But um, anyway, so just had a good time. But um, that's what summer's good for, right? A time for families to be together to relax. And we're, So we're so glad, though, that you're here with us this morning and um, taking the opportunity to, to be here with us as a family as well. Um, so, so pastors, I was saying, spent some time looking last week at David, as this unlikely king, and his surprising ascension to the throne of Israel. Um, specifically, pastor mentioned two of the things that set David apart. Do you remember those two things? It was they were his tendency to forgive as well as to repent, right? If you were here last week, remember those two things. His tendency to forgive as well as to repent. That's what's really one of the things that set David apart. This morning, then, we're going to continue looking at David as an unlikely king, and we're going to focus on um, 1 Samuel chapter 16. So if you got your Bibles with you here this morning, either on uh, Bible app on your phone or the Old the old school hard copy, (laughs) Um, get those out. And we're going to focus on first Samuel 16 this morning. We're going to look together at the amazing way that God speaks to Samuel and actually choosing David from among a group of men, David's brothers as the next King of Israel. Um, In a brief recap now to give you a, to, to shoot back the history a little bit of the time. Remember that before Israel had a King, God had established a type of governmental rule over Israel with a system of judges that ruled the land. But there was a problem. Not in God's system, right, but a problem from the people. (laughs) The Israelites wanted to be like who? They wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted to be like every other nation at the time um, that had a king, that was a monarchy. Right They wanted their own king they, they thought, "Oh, this will give this will take us to the next step as a people, right? This will solidify our our prowess in the region. We need a king. You know th- what's interesting is that God had tried to set Israel apart as a people, and, and, but they weren't content, were they? They came to God, they, they, they are kind of almost demanding a king. So then the books of Samuel describe the movement from the system of judges to the era of the kings, with King Saul being installed as the first king of Israel around the 11th century B.C. Now for those who didn't pay attention in Sunday school... Okay. We're talking about the Old Testament Saul. This is not the New Testament Saul that was previously Paul. Okay. Just thought I'd throw that out there for anyone who, um, who hadn't made that connection. I see some light bulbs maybe going off. Oh, there. So, um, but pastor, listen to this. Pastor and author Tim Chester in his book, entitled 1 Samuel for you, had this to say about the transition from the system of judges to that of a monarchy. He says this, The people of Israel ask for a king, and the king they get is Saul. But over the course of chapters 13 through 15 of 1 Samuel, Saul fails badly three times. He is the king Israel asked for, but not the king they need. And so, as it says in one Samuel fifteen thirty-five, one Samuel fifteen thirty-five, until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Isn't that interesting? We actually get that that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. However, after Saul's disobedience to the Lord, those, those three times of failure, God used the Old Testament prophet Samuel to rebuke and actually invalidate the rule of Saul. So in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar, God um, consistently used prophets um, as sort of his mouthpiece to the people, right? Uh, when when King David would later commit um, adultery, it was it was the prophet Nathan who confronted David in his sin. So even the kings of the day were subject uh, to the voice of God through these prophets. Okay, so God sets up this scene with Samuel, where Saul's authority is basically voided, and he sends Samuel then to find and anoint. A, a, the new rightful king of Israel who will replace Saul at the point of time. God says, Saul, you're done. I gave you a chance. You're done. That's it. Um, I've got someone else. Now, he doesn't tell that to Saul, but he tells that to Samuel. So if you've got your Bibles there, you're looking with us. Uh, we're looking now First 1 Samuel thirteen thirteen. 13. Um, it's up on the screens as well. 1 Samuel 13, 13. This is Samuel talking to Saul. He says, you acted foolishly. Samuel said, you have not kept the command the Lord, your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. Isn't that interesting? Basically the Lord, uh, I'm sorry. Basically Samuel tells Saul here, if you had obeyed the Lord, you could have stayed. And flourished as the king of Israel. But because you didn't, he's chosen someone else. Saul is now no longer the rightful king of Israel in God's eyes. And that's what matters, right? Forget that Saul thinks he's still king. God has told him he's done um, through Samuel. So as we've already heard at the end of chapter 15, the Lord was actually grieved. They made Saul king. But of course, we all know the story. He's right. He's got someone else in mind. Now, getting into our focus um, section reading for this for this morning um, at chapter 16. Look there at chapter 16, verse 1. This is the Lord now talking to Samuel. He says, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So the Lord tells Samuel here, Okay, Time to move on from your sadness. Saul's days are done. There, that's it. There's, there's no second chance here for Saul. He's done. But I've got, here's the hope in, that's that's presented in the story, but I've got someone new in mind. Get your stuff together. Let's go. He instructs him to take a horn um, of oil, probably of a ram. Got a picture of it here. It was known, it was known as a shofar, uh, which was used in traditional um, Hebrew services. If we've got it there. Okay we can't find it there that's all right um, look, look you can picture a you can picture a ram 's horn right okay it was a it was used in um, traditional Hebrew services capped with some kind it was hollowed out capped with some kind of uh, metal to to seal it okay and it was used in traditional services to 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 anoint um, or or sacri- sacrificial ceremonies as well um, for, for, for those services. So um, God tells him to take, take the horn with him and, and do what I've asked you to do. So reading on in verses two and three. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Now, we've got to understand here, it's a really interesting part of this story, um, and some of this we don't know specific details because it's not real clear in, in Scripture, but we can, we can make some inferences and assumptions about what's going on. What Samuel was doing, what the Lord had asked Samuel to do in anointing a new king, would have been worse than treason, would have been seen as treason. It's in your notes there, I think. Uh, would have been perceived as treason by the current monarch. An- think about it. Anointing a new king while the current king sat on the throne would have certainly incited a death wish for Samuel if, if they had discovered what Samuel was doing, right? So while the prophets were generally given an ear for correction from God to even kings, they would not have been given the authority to usurp the throne, right? That would not have been within their um, executive power to install a new king while while the current king sat. So Samuel understood that if he went to Jesse's house, explained his intentions in detail um, to Jesse, Jesse himself may have had no choice but to report Samuel to the king. Because think about what that does to Jesse then. It puts him on the end of knowing this this treason is happening. So getting to my, getting to my point here, um, the point is made by some scholars on the subject that it's possible that even Jesse and his own sons didn't know fully, didn't fully realize what Samuel was doing that day. They may have just thought Samuel's anointing that day was a special dedication to the Lord, to God's service. Um, Samuel may have hidden the full reason he was there, even from Jesse and his sons. Um, it's probably the reason why then Samuel entered the city. Uh, when Samuel entered the city, the elders act the way they act the way they do. This is verse four, now chapter sixteen, verse four. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him and they asked, Do you come in peace? There was this, there was this, um, little bit of fearful confusion. Oh gosh, why is Samuel here? Right? Why is he coming here? Um, Chester here again suggests the elders knew something was strange and wanted to be sure, right? That they weren't about to be on the losing end of God's judgment. For all these reasons, God instructs Samuel to explain they are there to sacrifice to the Lord. That's the instructions he gives to Samuel, uh, that he's there to sacrifice to the Lord. And, and, And invites the local elders along with Jesse to the service. Of course this is true, but, but keep in mind, the Lord has Samuel strategically leave out the point about him anointing a new king. Um, Samuel never says those words to Jesse, at least we're in, in the scripture that we see, that he's there to anoint a new king. We don't get that picture. So the, the shofar, the horn that we talked about that Samuel had would have been used in traditional sacrificial ceremonies as well. So it wouldn't have looked out of place that Samuel had that. Um, what's so interesting about that is in that shofar sat the oil that was going to anoint a new king. Think about that. It was there the whole time. Jesse didn't realize it. Samuel knew what God was doing. He was anointing a new king to lead the people of Israel. So reading on in verse 5, keep following along with me there. Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6, looking on at verse 6, we see Samuel begin looking over the sons of Jesse, who may have been lined up. Um, think probably this line of kids. If anyone out there ever seen Sound of Music, okay? Think of the line of the Von Trapp children standing <laughs> from biggest to youngest, okay? Um, you can kind of view that line of, of kids standing there in order. I don't think Jesse probably had a specific whistle for each kid, but you get the idea. So the natural tendency of Samuel then was to immediately look to the oldest, Right? That was his natural tendency. Look to the oldest, if you need someone to lead, or, or, or biggest son of Jesse, as the obvious choice to be the next king. That was Samuel's immediate um, uh, assumption, was that it was going to be the oldest, tallest, biggest, strongest to lead to lead Israel. Size, stature, physical strength, it kind of gives us this impression, right, of, of maturity, um, confidence, ability. But God is going to shift how Samuel chooses the the king of Israel, the next king. He's going to shift and and speak to Samuel to to how to really choose the right person. In verse 6, When they arrived, um, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Um, of course, he's talking and thinking about Eliab, okay? No one else. He, he's, he's, he's looking again at the oldest and the biggest. Picture this line of men, like I said, standing beside before Samuel, um, tallest and strongest. Samuel obviously assumes that this one, Eliab, would be the next king of Israel. He's ready, first shot, right? First son that comes up, he's ready to anoint him king. Um, but the Lord speaks to Samuel in that significant moment and convicts his heart of an important eternal truth here where we're going to kind of land for a little bit this morning. Verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. What's he say here? The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Amen. The Lord had rejected him based off of all the things that Samuel was looking at, his height, his stature, his strength, all those things. The Lord had said, no, that's not that's not my guy. <laughs> that's not who I'm looking for. Now, before you all roll your eyes at Samuel, okay, and his um, kind of snap judgment uh, for simply wanting to choose the tallest and strongest, Uh, Maybe best-looking son of Jesse. I've got a clip here that I want to show you um, explaining a study that was done on how most people choose even elected officials. So take a look at this clip with me.
1: In this next experiment, we're going to show you the faces of different candidates from various local elections. We've paired up some of the winners with some of the losers. Something tells me somehow you're going to be able to pick the winner just by looking at them. Ready? See if you can tell which of these candidates won their election
0: Who do you choose? Who do you choose?
1: Got it? Now here's the real result
0: Did you get it right? Did you get it right? Next one
1: Now how about these two? Here's the winner
0: Did you get it?
1: What about these two? Next one And the winner is So how did you do? Did you pick most of the winners? The majority of the people we surveyed did. So how did you pick those winners? How could you know based on nothing more than seeing their faces for just a few seconds? Bulgarian perception specialist Alex Todorov of Princeton University found the answer in a groundbreaking 2007 experiment. A very rapid glance is sufficient to predict about 70% of the election outcomes. 70% of the time. We can predict the winners of elections based on their faces alone. pretty incredible. But what is it about these winners that persuaded your brain to vote for them? It's not just the clothes, the background, or even the smile. The answer has to do with two specific qualities you saw in their facial structure. In our studies, we found that candidates who look more competent and more trustworthy were more likely to be elected in office. Competence and trustworthiness You may find it hard to believe Your brain can make such complex social assessments Based on a face alone But it can Give it a shot Which one of these faces looks the most trustworthy? This one? Or this one? What about this one? Number three In Your choice. <laughs> if you chose face one You're with 85% of the people we surveyed Although our judgments of someone else's character aren't necessarily accurate, they happen in the blink of an eye. Todorov's study revealed your brain can literally decide if it trusts someone within a tenth of a second of seeing his or her face.
0: Isn't that amazing? So we're generally, what, very superficial with our judgments, aren't we? Sometimes when we're we're making snap judgments like that, that video shows and we make these quick judgments as crucial as someone's competence and their trustworthiness in a split second. In a tenth of a second, we're making judgments of people on whether or not we can trust them. Say nothing about their stances on issues. We're we're making these, these judgments sometimes like that. Hopefully though as people as we as we learn to continue to live as people after God's own heart we can start dropping these judgments of people right and see each other in the ways that God sees us so yes, sometimes we make these judgments of of people in the positive meaning, you know, as in this video of who's more trustworthy, who's more competent. Okay, um, but but probably more common um, is when you and I make judgments in the negative of people, right? When we when we judge someone's intentions or their just their character like that before we get to even know them, um, and and I'm here to admit this morning I've done it as well. Um, I, I remember, I'll never forget this time um, where Brittany and I were going to meet um, one of our son's teachers. I, I don't know if it was kindergarten or first grade. And it was one of those nights, right? Most, most schools do it. You go, you meet the teachers the first day. You drop off supplies. You, the, the, the little kids go around and look at their desk, and they go see the classroom, maybe meet the class fish or whatever else it is. And, um, and so we walk in with our son. And almost immediately, almost immediately, I look over and I see this guy, and I'm like, "Oh no!" This guy is covered in tattoos up to his hairline. I mean, he's got tattoos creeping up his neck. He's got them on his hands and like coming out his nu- on his knuckles. And he's got the little teardrop, you know, tattoo. And I'm like, Brittany. Does that mean he's killed somebody? What does what does that mean, you know? I'm making all these judgments, right? About this about this guy. I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness, what kind of kid? <laughs> this sounds this I'm I'm ashamed just to be telling you this. This this kid whose kid is going to be in class with my son, right? I mean, these are the thoughts going through my head. Um, he's, these tattoos weren't professionally done. I'm like, honey, th- did he get those in prison? You know, where were these tattoos? Those, those weren't done at a tattoo shop as if I'm some connoisseur of tattoos. But, um, so later on this, this night passed, we we got past this, we get home, we're talking with some friends about the experience, the the classroom. And they go, oh my gosh, we know, we know a guy, go- we know a family in that class, We know a family whose son, and I'm like, oh, really? And they start explaining, and it's this guy. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Who is this guy? So they start telling me, well, he was a former, one of the biggest crack dealers in Kansas. And I was like, I knew it. (laughs) No, but he was a former crack um, dealer in Kansas, had been um, caught, arrested, thrown in prison. Um, And wouldn't you know, God got a hold of his life in prison. Amen? He got a hold of his life in prison. A pastor began writing, corresponding with this gentleman, gave his life to God behind bars. God called this guy to ministry while he was still in prison. He got out of prison. He went to Bible school. This man is now ministering to people in Springfield, Missouri through a ministry ministry. Um, I, the name of the ministry, I just I just lost it, but um, an amazing ministry that's reaching out to the kind of unreachable populations, the the prostitutes, the pimps, the uh, the those struggling with addiction. I mean, those that um, some many have just kind of pushed aside. He's reaching those people huge you, you can look him up sometime his name is John Stroop and uh we got to actually had we had the pleasure of inviting them over for dinner we got to sit and talk with them just with well, the coolest couple I love hearing stories like that of how God has radically got a hold of someone and just transformed their life, and He did that with this this guy, John. Um, before Brittany and I moved out to Colorado, we were part of a church plan out there. I had the awesome opportunity to shadow John and his ministry and, and everything that they do. Just such. An amazing guy, and I was so glad that I, I got to meet him. And I think I ended up telling him this story of of seeing him the first time. We we built enough of a relationship where I felt comfortable telling him, "Dude, I super judged you <laughs> like really bad," and and he just kind of laughed. And he's 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 used to that you know perception. But um, again, it's just a testament to how God had changed his life. But even for Samuel, right, God's chosen prophet for that time. The man suited to choose the next king of Israel, even he was prone, right, to make these judgments, to look at the outward appearances. Samuel was ready, isn't it interesting, to choose the most important leader at the time, at that time of history, based solely on what? On physical appearances, right? Height and stature. Samuel did not personally know these sons of Jesse. He didn't know them. He didn't know whether they were honest or trustworthy or if they, if they were men of courage or strength. He was just ready to choose them, right, based on who, off of who stood taller in the line of sons. Chester again points out in his book how God presented a bit of a precursor, an interesting precursor to this story, using Samuel's own mother, Hannah, which we read about in the very beginning of 1 Samuel. Um, 1 Samuel opens with the story of a barren woman, Hannah, uh, who was mocked by her rival in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and to whom God gave a child? Hannah's celebration song sets the agenda for the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel. Her story was the great picture of how God would work in the next chapter of Israel's history and the whole of human history as well. Do not keep talking so proudly, she sings. The Lord humbles and he exalts. It is not by strength that one prevails. That's from chapters uh, 1 Samuel chapters 2, verses 3, 7, and 9, kind of thrown together there. Isn't that interesting? The Lord humbles and he exalts. It is not by strength that one prevails. The word proudly that's used there is the same word for height in the, in the, in the Hebrew. Chester goes on to explain. We may use it in the context. Um, you've, you've heard the phrase, don't think so highly of yourself, right? It's that same phrase kind of used there. Don't think so highly of yourself. That same word is then used again in chapter nine, verse two, to introduce who Saul. Isn't that interesting? That same word is then used to introduce Saul, declaring Saul as a tall man was not was not a a positive thing for those who've been paying attention throughout Samuel. So we begin to see Saul then. Um, described as this man who was prideful, thought of himself too highly. In fact, not only was Saul known as more prideful, the contrast between Saul and David continued from there. David was the, a great shepherd, right? He had killed lions and bears protecting his flock. Saul, on the other hand, we hear in 1 Samuel 9, 3, had actually lost some of his father's donkeys when watching them. We read about that um, in 1 Samuel 9. So juxtapose these thoughts with Jesse's sons, staying in front of Samuel as God instructs Samuel to not look at their outward appearances. One by one, what does the Lord do? He starts rejecting everyone, everyone of Samuel's, uh, I'm sorry, of Jesse's sons, starting with Eliab, the oldest. They come before Samuel and the Lord rejects them. Read with me then in verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. So they're standing in line. One by one, they come up. They pass in front of Samuel. Um, But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. He rejects Abinadab. Jesse then had Shema pass pass through. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel that morning. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen these, not a one of them. So he asked Jesse, listen to this, are these all the sons you have? You can't help now but think at this point, all right, uh, what was going through Samuel's head. He, he sees this line of sons, he assumes probably that these are all of them, right? And God had sent Samuel all this way to anoint the next king of Israel. And then God, for some reason, rejects all of them <laughs> who he thought uh, were Jesse's sons. If you were here a couple weeks ago, though, because of Samuel's obedience to the Lord, his trust in the Lord, he's got to know that there's something else going on, right? He's got to know there's a bigger picture that Samuel can't see somewhere. So that, so that prompts, I think, Samuel's question. Are these all of your sons? Like there's another one, right, that you're just not showing us. And so um, looking then in verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. So you've got you've to think here for a minute, okay, what was going now through, through Jesse's head? What, can't you just hear in his response how he has completely dismissed David as a possibility? If he understood what Samuel, the purpose that Samuel was there for, he had completely dismissed David as a potential, right? He didn't even give him a second thought. He said, there's no way that that little, that little runt, that whatever, okay, is going to be who Samuel is looking for. Probably the smallest, least likely to be important, okay, needed to be at this all-important relig- religious ceremony with the rest of the family. He didn't need to be there in, in Jesse's mind, right? After all, someone has to take care of the cattle. You know, someone has to watch the sheep. And that's, that's David, obviously. So continuing in verse 11, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy, with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. What's interesting to me about that verse is how quickly, at least, we get the impression that this all happened, right? Go send for him. Samuel says, We'll wait until he gets here. We're not moving. Okay, and then as soon as he, as soon as he comes, it, it's, it's as if the Lord says, see, there he is, he's the king, let's anoint him. I mean, it was just it's such a fast transition to the, the Lord didn't waste any time, right? Once, he, once David showed up. So ending this section of studying verse, verse 13, we read, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Again, can, think about the other brothers standing there. Think about the other brothers from the oldest, all seven of them. Again, here's this youngest. If, if you're an older child, okay, what's this stereotypical youngest, you know, the, the, whatever, I don't, the brat, okay, the one that gets away with everything, whatever, the stereotypical youngest child, you know. Um, and here are all the rest of these brothers going, oh my gosh, him. You know, that's what they're thinking. David, the one who watches the sheep, they're all making these judgments. Turn my mic off there, sorry. They're all making these judgments again of David. He can't be, he can't be the next king. He can't be the one. And sure enough, the Lord kind of rejects all of that thought and puts him up on the throne. So for all intents and purposes, David was now the rightful king of Israel. Whether or not Saul was still on the throne, the spirit of the Lord had come upon him, we read there in verse 13, which signified in the Old Testament, signified the Lord's anointing, um, that person as the king. In fact, interestingly enough, immediately following verse 13, we read that the spirit of the Lord departed Saul seemingly almost at the exact same time so it's this interesting picture of the lord coming upon saul he's anointed i'm sorry on david he's now the anointed king and immediately leaving um saul he's done he's gone so now again saul's going to sit on the throne I figured uh, for for a little while more but we know that david is the rightful king now uh, of israel saul's days as king were over Whether or not he was willing to admit it, the spirit coming upon David and departing Saul signified the finality of David's unlikely ascension to the throne. Three important truths I want to talk through uh, with you this morning uh, as we've talked through the story of Samuel anointing David. Number one, in light of our worth and value, God looks at the content of our hearts. In light of our worth and value, God looks at the content of our hearts. Most of us have probably felt some judgment based off from people based off of superficial things, right? At some point in our lives, most of us have probably felt that 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 judgment. But you and I can rest easy knowing that God is not placing your value on how well we're put together. Thank goodness. Okay. It's, our value and worth is not, is not found in the Lord on how or, organized our homes are, or how clean and neat our kids are, or how well we stay on top of everything, or, or what kind of car we drive. God is rejecting those judgments of us and saying that's not what I'm looking at. God is peering in and taking a look at the intent, at the makeup of our hearts. Now, this fact should both delight us and scare us a little bit, <laughs> right? The superficial things don't matter. Throw them away. They don't matter. Praise God. But the things that matter really matter. Okay, if God is looking deep into our lives, what has he seen? What has he seen in our hearts? In speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 34, Jesus reminds us that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks similarly in proverbs 4:23 we're reminded that above all else what guard your heart for everything you do flows from it what is the status of your heart this morning what's the status of your heart secondly god knew david's future failures God knew David's future failures, and yet he still chose him, right? In spite of his future adultery, murder, and sin, God still chose David. You see, our sin doesn't disqualify us from being used by God. Can I encourage you that this morning? Our sin does not disqualify us from being used by God. God still chose David, and yet he knew what he would do. My friend John, the crack dealer from Kansas, he wasn't out of God's reach from being from being used. Otherwise, none of us could be used, right? If God's gonna if God's gonna reject us based off of our sin, none of us are worthy. As Pastor shared last week, though, the thing that set David apart was that he was willing to admit his wrongdoing and repent. You and I then should be willing to admit our wrong and seek forgiveness when we err. The fact that God will still use us doesn't license us to keep on doing wrong. Make that point there. God used Moses. He used Rahab. And he can still use you and I even after we failed. But let's make sure we continue to come to Christ in repentance. Lastly, what man sees as insignificant, God sees as worthy. what man looks at and, see at, and looks at as insignificant, God sees as worthy. if you 've ever been in a place where you felt marginalized or sidelined or unimportant, look to the story of David in your life. His own father felt no reason. To, to invite him to this family ceremony, right? He said, no, nope, you're going to stay out there, take care of the sheep. You're not coming. I know many here this morning have felt that painful rejection from family, have felt um, a lack of, of love and support from their own family. If that's you this morning, look to the story of David. He found his worth, his value, his importance, his moment as the anointing of the next king was found in God who was left in the field at the bottom of the pecking order to care for the sheep while the rest of his family brought together to be part uh, of the sacrifice to the Lord who Jesse may have seen as the least likely to be anointed king God chose as exactly the right man for the moment furthermore there's this picture of David as the perfect precursor to Christ And this is where I want to end this morning. David was an interest, it was a really um, interesting precursor to the person of Christ. He was the unassuming shepherd rejected by man, but chosen by God to step into the kingship and save the people. So just like David, Jesus was the Messiah that no one expected. When many had hoped for a physically strong warrior who was going to come in and overthrow the Roman conquerors at the time, Jesus came as the gentle lamb to conquer our hearts and sacrifice himself for us. David then perfectly foreshadowed the arrival of the person of Jesus. Chester finishes his commentary on this section of scripture with this closing thought. David proved he was a good shepherd because he was willing to risk his life for the sheep. Jesus proves he is the ultimate good shepherd because he gives his life for his sheep. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep from John 10:11. This morning, this picture is is the is the picture of the king that you and I need. Israel discovered under under first um, Saul's and then David's rule that the king we decide we want, the king we choose for ourselves, is often not the right ruler for us, right? We need someone who will rule humbly. We need someone who will care for us, the wandering sheep, who will die to protect us. We must all choose a king to rule our hearts, our lives, and our futures. Naturally, though, we sometimes choose a Saul-like king but God gives us a shepherd king, a greater David. Being a believer, being a follower of Christ is not about having to live under Jesus's rule. It is about getting to live under his humble reign, about the security and joy of knowing that we have the king we need, chosen by the Lord and given to us. Amen. Chosen by the Lord and given to us, the shepherd, the king that we need. I'm going to assume that there may be some here this morning who haven't made that personal decision to make Jesus the king of their lives. There are some here this morning, I believe, that haven't yet made that decision If you, and if you haven't, I'd like to pray with you this morning that you would make that decision before you walk out of these doors. There's no reason to wait. There's no reason to wait. If everyone would bow your heads, um, close your eyes with me as we pray here. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. God, we thank you for sending your son as the perfect king that all of us needed. God, if there are those here this morning who need to make a decision to follow you with all of their hearts, maybe they've been walking that line for a while, God, walking the fence of, uh, of kind of a foot on both sides of, of, of living the life of the world and, and living a life for you. God, I pray this morning that someone would be here this morning would feel you stirring in their hearts and, and to, to know the need uh, of Jesus in their lives. God, would you convict them now of that need? I pray that they would make the decision right now where they sit, of their uh, to follow you, Lord, for the rest of their days. In your name, we pray. Everyone said, "Amen, amen." If you've made, listen. The, the worship worship team is going to close us in a song here. And um, yes, no, that's okay. Music's great too. Music's great too. <laughs> Um, if you've made that decision this morning, you would really um, just honor us by letting us know you made that decision. There's a prayer card, uh, again, in the seat in front of you. Just let us know you've made that decision. We would be honored to pray and to encourage you um, in that decision. And listen, salvation's not the final step, now it's on to discipleship. Right now it's, on, now it's time to grow. Now it's time to become more like Christ. We've got a lot of opportunities for you to do that. We've got small groups here at Living Word we call Acts groups. We've got Bible studies for both men and women. Um, we've got different opportunities for you to grow now in your relationship with the Lord. So uh, you can check out those things on our website. Call here to the office, get some information from us on those. But we want to encourage you to step in. And even those who have been in a relationship with the Lord now for a while, we want to encourage you to take that next step in your walk of faith. Okay? Amen. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Have a blessed week. The weather's beautiful. Go enjoy it. All right? Thank you all. Have a great week.